You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Hey, welcome back. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast. And as always, we are your hosts, uh, Bill Winter. Hello again. And I am Donovan Riley. This is season two, episode, well, whatever number we're up to at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we're not mathematicians. No, I'm, I'm not a rocket surgeon. Um, actually, we're recording this on a Saturday afternoon rather than our usual Tuesday mornings. And uh, that, that changes the tone and temper just a little bit. But uh, as always, we're in, as always, actually, we're right now, we're in Bushido, the soul of Japan by Inazo Natobe. We're going to jump now to the chapter entitled Self-Control, chapter 11. And we're going to jump right into it, actually. So, Natobe writes, Calmness of behavior, composure of mind, should not be disturbed by passion of any kind. I remember when, during the late war with China, a regiment left a certain town. A large concourse of people flocked to the station to bid farewell to the general and his army. On this occasion, an American resident resorted, resorted to the place, expecting to witness loud demonstrations, as the nation itself was highly excited, and there were fathers, mothers, wives, and sweethearts of the soldiers in the crowd. The American was strangely disappointed, for as the whistle blew and the train began to move, the hats of thousands of people were silently taken off, and their heads bowed in reverential farewell. No waving of handkerchiefs, no word uttered, but deep silence, in which only an attentive ear could catch a few broken sobs. In domestic life, too, I know of a father who spent whole nights listening to the breathing of a sick child standing behind the door that he might not be caught in such an act of parental weakness. I know of a mother who in her last moments refrained from sending for her son that he might not be disturbed in his studies. Our history and everyday life are replete with examples of heroic matrons who can well bear comparison with some of the most touching pages of Plutarch. Among our peasantry, an Ian McLaren would be sure to find many a Margaret Howe. It is the same discipline of self-restraint which is accountable for the absence of more frequent revivals in the Christian churches of Japan. When a man or woman feels his or her soul stirred, the first instinct is quietly to suppress the manifestation of it. In rare instances is the tongue set free by an irresistible spirit when we have eloquence of sincerity and fervor. It is putting a premium upon a breach of the third commandment to encourage speaking lightly of spiritual experience. It is truly jarring to Japanese ears to hear the most sacred words, the most secret heart experiences, thrown out in promiscuous audiences. Dost thou feel the soil of thy soul stirred with tender thoughts? It is time for seeds to sprout. Disturb it not with speech, but let it work alone in quietness and secrecy, writes a young samurai in his diary. There you go. And very, very different than how we behave ourselves in the West. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Although upper Midwestern Lutherans would definitely resonate with what he's writing here. (laughs) (laughs) The most uh, 
exciting thing you'll hear amongst upper Midwestern Lutherans is if they compliment your shoes come Sunday morning. Oh, nice pair of shoes you got there, Bob. Easy there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I barely know you. We've known each other for 40 years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The calmness of behavior, composure of mind should not be disturbed by passion of any kind. By passion, he means emotions. Yeah. And so calmness of behavior, composure of mind is not to be disturbed by emotions of any kind, which again is a very stoic thought, actually a very stoic practice. Mm -hmm. The discipline of one's emotions, the discipline of desires, as Marcus Aurelius says, or Epictetus before him, is the thing that really derails reason or here what he calls composure of mind. But also then to his point, and I'll ask you this question, Bill, what then is the consequence if we allow our emotions, right, to manage our thoughts, especially in a time of conflict? <laughs> Have you seen Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Tip, be sure to tip your waiters. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> God for this podcast. <laughs> I, I jest, but I'm completely serious. Oh, 100%. The things we see on social media, the outrage, which seems to be 90 plus percent of the content on there, Mm -hmm. is a perfect example of what happens when people allow their emotions, whether good or bad, to dictate their actions rather than forcing their reason to dictate their actions. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is, first of all, people cannot seem to think straight on social media. Mm -hmm. It's all fallacious arguments. Mm -hmm. It's all straw men and uh, red hair and name name the fallacy and it's present there. And no one recognizes it. There's an utter lack of self-reflection and self-awareness so that we find people openly, uh, for example, calling for genocide, frankly, spade a spade. And they don't even realize that that's what they have done. Well, that's a good point, though, before we get too much further, is that... Mm -hmm emotions and allowing your emotions to manage you rather than managing your emotions renders you incapable of reasonable thinking. Yep. And so what passes, especially as you pointed out on Twitter in particular for rational thinking is emotion. It's emoting, you're emoting. And I think this is at the root of the outrage culture Mm -hmm. is that we don't let the facts get, in fact, a politician just said this, that we stand for the truth, not, uh, not the facts or something to that. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very postmodern thing to say that truth and facts are not synonymous. Mm. It's you have your truth, I have my truth, that kind of expression, this kind of attitude. But we also live in a post-romantic era, meaning precisely we, right, is that we allow emotion, we actually allow emotions to manage our decision-making processes and therefore if something makes me feel bad it's bad and if something makes me feel good it's good therefore if you make me feel good you're a good person 
But if you make me feel bad, you're obviously a bad person. And therefore, I am now justified in whatever I say or do to you. Because, and this actually kind of gets to the root of school shootings, I've got to figure out a way to silence those voices that diminish me, that make me feel lesser than, or simply just make me feel bad about myself on an emotional level. We're not able, as you pointed out, to, to, to reason together, which is very important in Greek and Roman philosophy, is to come together and to reason together. This is why philosophers met in the town um, center or the town square and sat and discussed with each other their philosophy mm-hmm. called parousia, parousia in Greek. That is public reasoning, public reasonable debate. And as a consequence, because we don't have what I would even argue is close to debate nowadays. I know we have debates, but I wouldn't qualify them as debates in a classic sense. You'll notice then that comments of behavior is often absent from disputes. Composure of mind is 100% absent most of the time. And this is the interesting thing, though, to, to juxtapose this. The fighters that I know, for example... This is one of the first things that I was taught when I started training, which is control your emotions. Because if you allow your emotions to control you, you're not thinking. And if you're not thinking, then you're acting without thinking. And if you act without thinking, you're going to get knocked out Mm -hmm. because you literally go blind. Yep. You just get this tunnel vision and you're focused on their feet or their hands, or you're not even focused at all. You're just mad. And you decide, I'm going to push your face through the back of your head. And then you wake up 30 seconds later and you wonder what happened. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, society in a general sense is, is not calm in their behavior, when, especially when it comes to a dispute, or like I said, something that makes you feel bad about yourself. They don't therefore have a composed mind, therefore they are disturbed by their emotions. They also, as we've talked about before, don't realize or accept that you choose to allow your emotions to dictate your behavior and your thoughts. You can actually control your emotions. Mm. But then on the other side, a person who you would think because they are trained in violence is not in control of their emotions and isn't a thoughtful person, does not have a composed mind, are actually the people that have the most composed mind and are most in control of their emotions. Yep. So what is it then about training in violence, for example, combat in this case, physical combat, that you come out the other side and say, well, actually, this is a very thoughtful person. This isn't some knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. This is a person who manages their emotions, is calm in their behavior, is respectful, is kind, is charitable, is helpful. And yet the person who's not trained in combat, in physical violence, lacks these things. Because this is Bushido. This is a warrior ethic. Mm. I, I think the answer to that is multifaceted first of all being trained um, in martial arts for example means that a person has been punched in the face yep (laughs) that makes them less likely to put themselves into situations where that's going to happen Mm mm-hmm the bar, for example, mm-hmm. guys in the tap out shirts who right. are smashed and picking fights don't actually train. Mm-hmm. 
but they get a bit of that liquid courage in them and suddenly they think that they're, you know, hoist Gracie. Right. And they can do whatever they want. I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Another part of it also is in training, you learn the correct application of violence. There you go. Yeah. And when we don't understand this correct application, we cannot understand the consequences of even rightly applied violence. Right. So the cop who is a rookie, super eager to draw his gun and looking for the chance to start squeezing the trigger. The one who has actually been put into that situation uh, say rightly mm-hmm. understands that regardless of how justified or legal the action was, right. there are still consequences, not only for himself, but everything that's on the other side of that weapon. Right. No, and that's a great point too, is because we talk a lot about discipline and developing these patterns, these habits, which is essentially a code of conduct, which is ethics or ethics or ethos is a code of conduct. And that what the discipline of training gives you, whether it's training in firearms, training in knife fighting, training in hand-to-hand combat, whether striking or grappling, the repeated discipline, the pattern, the habit that you develop through that training, it weeds out your weaknesses. It exposes your vulnerabilities. And as I was just explaining to two students after class today, it's a reality filter. So whoever you think you are, or whatever you think you're capable of, that will be sifted out in these exercises. And the upside is it's a controlled environment. We have two and a half inch mats. There's rules. We're teammates. We're not trying to hurt each other. We're trying to take care of each other. We're sharing information. We're encouraging each other. And that in that then process, you are essentially as safe as you can be to develop these habits, develop this discipline that then allows you in a conflict, whether it's verbal or physical, and even mental, existential, you know, it's an internal conflict of thought or feeling. It allows you to recognize, okay, why am I angry or why am I sad or why am I upset? What's the stimulus here? And like Epictetus said, we're not in control of what happens around us, but we are in control of our reaction to those things. Precisely. And training in combat, because it is high stakes, regardless of how many rules there are, no matter how safe you are, as I learned again this morning, (laughs) I took a a straight knee shot to a part of the body that no man wants to take a straight knee shot to. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) after the round was over, several teammates came over and asked if I was okay because they thought I had blown my knee out because apparently I made a noise. (laughs) I'll bet. That I wasn't aware of at the time because everything went white for a couple minutes. But the point being is I didn't lose my temper. I didn't turn around and try and punch my training partner in the face or kick him or start screaming at him for that knee slice. Because number one, I'm notorious for not giving up my, if I get you in full guard, I'm not giving it up. Mm -hmm. And so not to get too nerdy here, but if you try and, you know, drive your knee up into my crotch to break my guard, I try and actually get my hips over your knee and reestablish full guard. So I had eliminated every choice for my training partner except two. One, let me hold you in full guard and then go into rubber guard and and attack or drive your knee straight up the middle. 
I didn't give him the option to go from, you know, one side or the other with a knee slice, go through the left, you know, my left hip or my right hip. So he had two options, go backwards or move forwards. He chose to move forwards because we were in a fight. There was an obstruction. (laughs) His knee cleared that obstruction. Um, But the point being is I didn't lose my temper because one, I've done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. So one, I recognized, okay, it happens. Number two, I put him in a position for it to happen. And number three, he immediately apologized. Mm -hmm. And then actually texted me after I got home just to make sure that I was still okay. I'm like, I'm definitely not okay. (laughs) But no worries, it's not a big deal. It happens. It's the cost of entry, right? Mm. But that's what I mean is, but if you go back three years ago and then it happened, I would 100% have lost my temper and I would have blamed him for hurting me. Mm. Part of that's lack of knowledge because of lack of experience, but also... I didn't have control of my emotions because I hadn't subjected myself to the discipline of, of what's involved with that training so that I can learn, you know what, not cool to lose your temper because after the fact, you might realize I was actually at fault there. Yep. Now I got to go back because I'm ashamed of myself. You know, and I ashamed, not only did I shame myself in relation to my training partner, everybody else on the mats heard what I said. Mm-hmm. They saw what I did and I'm an instructor. So what does that say now? That one of the, the instructors at the gym is an emotional person who loses his temper when you do something that he doesn't like. Yep. You know, there's, I think that's the other part of it too, is recognizing that you're, when you allow your emotions to manage you, you're not just messing with yourself. It's not just a matter that you're losing your composure, your mental composure, you're not thinking. Everyone around you that's immediately in, in your area is going to be affected by you losing your temper mm-hmm. or, or allowing those emotions to overcome you Yep. versus I didn't lose my temper. And I said, hey, you know what? I only left you two options because I'm hyper aware in the moment what's going on now. One, I earned his respect and I deepened the relationship with him on that level as a training partner because I didn't lose my temper and I'm cool. I'm like, hey, man, you know what? This is, this is why this happened from my perspective. Everybody else around me is looking at me going, what, what's he going to do? And then they see that I don't react and I'm laughing with them and I shake it off and I get up and I go train with somebody else for the next round, right? But the point being is that what self-control earns you is the respect of those around you. And it might actually earn you some self-respect too. Mm-hmm. Because if you can control your emotions and you can maintain that composure in your thoughts and your actions, that sets you free in a certain sense to work out both in your thinking and your speaking and your feeling and your actions, what he writes here at the end, right? Do you feel the soil of your soul stirred with tender thoughts? Well, how was I able to react with kindness to a physically damaging situation? Mm. Because my thoughts were, because my emotions are calm. It's like Thursday night, I was training in a new student in the intro class and she's hyperventilating as every new student does when they roll with somebody. (laughs) and she just kept saying how is it that you're not breathing how is it that you're not breathing i'm like oh i'm breathing i'm just in control Mm -hmm. and you will do if you keep coming back but just that itself losing control of your breath not breathing hyperventilating holding your breath tensing up that also is an aspect of not being in control of your emotions yep allowing those passions to disturb you and it's not you're not a robot you're not a, a Vulcan or the Borg or something like that, but rather you, you recognize there's a time to get angry and there's a time to not get angry. Mm-hmm. And if you're always getting angry, you're like the boy that cried wolf. 
Yep. And yep. again, as a parent, you know this. <laughs> if you're always yelling at your kids, eventually they just ignore you. It's just white noise. Mm-hmm. Versus, no, if dad's yelling, we're at DEFCON 5. Something's definitely gone sideways. Mm-hmm. This is serious. So then to jump ahead, discipline in self-control can easily go too far. Well, here we go. It can well repress the genial current of the soul. It can force pliant natures into distortions and monstrosities. It can beget bigotry, breed hypocrisy, or habitate affections. Hmm. Be a virtue never so noble. It has its counterpart and counterfeit. We must recognize in each virtue its own positive excellence and follow its positive ideal. And the ideal of self-restraint is to keep the mind level, as our expression is, or to borrow a Greek term, attain the state of euthenia, which Democritus called the highest good. The acme and pitch of self-control is reached and best illustrated in the first of the two institutions, which we shall now bring to view, namely the institution of suicide and redress, mm-hmm. which are the next couple chapters. But this is also a great point then, right? That you can have a noble virtue. You can be a good man. It also has its counterpart. You can be a, an unvirtuous man ridden with vice and be evil. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can have counterfeit virtue. As you noted on Twitter, it quite often happens. <laughs> That's called virtue signaling. signaling. Exactly, which is exactly what we would refer to as being false virtue. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, it's interesting that the way he presents this, the, the idea of this self-control is to keep the mind level. Right. If the mind is level, you have the best opportunity to make the right decision regardless of the situation. Mm-hmm. This is why then keeping your, your mind level is important right. is allowing yourself that best opportunity to make the right decision, to make the virtuous decision, regardless of taking a knee slice or whatever else the case, you know, whatever yeah, right. else. Happens. Right. Right. Well, However, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. One thing that we find with, uh, this leveling of the mind, this uh, enforced serenity, if you will, is when it's a medicated state, it becomes yeah. its opposite. Right. It becomes this monstrous, bigoted thing that Natobi just described. What do I mean? Yeah. Human beings have emotions. Emotions in and of themselves are not inherently good or bad exactly uh, as as we are discussing them right now the problem or solution even comes in how we react to them that is to say if someone gets angry and they lash out Mm -hmm. that's wrong if they get angry and they suppress that or act uh, correctly in accordance with that, then that's right. However, when the emotions are artificially suppressed, say yeah. in the case of psychotropic medications, sure. 
then what ends up happening is the person is unable to feel these things. And this not only deadens, right. uh, say, their, their mental outbursts, if you will, right. but it also deadens empathy. It deadens right. love. It deadens the ability to be human. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is the, the point, for those of you listening who don't know, 5%, so 4.2 million people are on psychoactive drugs right now in the United States, mm-hmm. primarily for depression and the things related to depression. 5% of that 4.2 million suffer dissociative uh, episodes. And again, without going too deep down this rabbit hole, a majority of school shooters were on medication that caused dissociative episodes. A majority. So again, as many have said, and I'll say it here, because I'm, I'm definitely one who wants to have this conversation down the road, or yeah. I would appreciate hearing it publicly. We don't have a gun problem. We have a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is the mental health industry makes more money than the gun industry and has a lot more influence in the United States, which is saying something. <laughs> yeah. And mental health is, well, it's not tangible. I can come and take away your gun. That's tangible. I can buy back your gun. I can outlaw a gun. That's a tangible thing. It's an object on a table, let's say. Mental health is not tangible. Yep. Right? And so quite often we can see the consequences of mental health, mental illness and so forth. But we can't just look at a picture of a person's brain on an MRI, for example, and go, oh, look, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, this person's dissociative. Or this person's a sociopath, whatever it may be. You and I have both met plenty of sociopaths in our lives. Mm-hmm. We thought we're really great people <laughs> when we met them. And then after the fact, you go, oh, wait, this person's a sociopath. But I've also known, and my wife went through this um, in her own way too, with this of constantly being diagnosed with different you know, mental illnesses, so to speak, and being told, well, we'll just put you on these drugs. Yep. Well, again, my favorite thing is when a doctor says, we're going to play around with this and see uh, if we can get everything balanced out. Mm-hmm. It's an art. It's not a science. Point being, though, is because we went through it in, in our own uh, life experience and came out the other side of saying, thank you, but no, we're going to look at this holistically. We're going to look at sleep and, and uh, eating and exercise and, other, and environment and so forth and so on. But the point being then is that we tend toward when we're emotional in particular, and again, school shooting, since it's just happened again, twice last week, as of the recording of this, we react emotionally because it's an emotionally charged situation. Yep. And it evokes passionate response. When you act though, out of those emotions, as we've been discussing, you make decisions that are not reasonable or rational. And as a consequence, it actually creates more problems than it actually solves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus a nuanced argument, which socially I don't think we're capable of anymore. No. If ever, actually, I would argue if ever. Um, yeah. On the other side of it, then, is there ever, like you pointed out, is we're emotional creatures. And those emotions are neither good nor bad. They're not moral. We assign a value judgment to them based on how they manifest themselves in the present tense in reaction to a certain external stimuli. Mm-hmm. But even that's up for debate. Because, yeah, I don't like the way you make me feel, Bill. And you're saying to yourself, <laughs> I don't really care. Or, well, you don't like the truth. Or here's the facts, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then I, I put a value judgment on you based on how you make me feel versus can I step back, detach, and ask objectively or just observe what is Bill's intent? What is the motive of what Bill has just said to me? 
mm-hmm. and it makes me feel bad. Well, maybe that's my ego. Yep. If, yep. if what you say offends me, maybe it's not what you said that's the problem. Maybe it's my ego. Well, and that's, that is one of, as I see it, the major cultural issues we're seeing right now. We have created a society that encourages people to act on emotion. Right. And not just encourages it, but mm-hmm. I would actually argue um, uh, exacerbates. No, 100%. I, again, my kids are in elementary, middle, and high school. And mm-hmm. emotionalism is an ethic. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. part of the curriculum, essentially. It, it, very much so. Um, in many ways, we have been trained to not think, but feel. Right. And then we look around. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, and then we look around and we scratch our heads and want to blame guns and video games and Trump and, you know, or, um, gosh, what's his name? Uh, the, Anyway, the dude from Texas who rolled over there on a skateboard. Um, it, I'm I'm making a bad joke. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> we want to blame these tangible things for an issue that is inherently intangible, mm-hmm. and not just intangible, but multifaceted. Right. Well, Why? Because yeah. it will make us feel good until well, the next have, thing comes right, around. You have individuals who lack self-control, and therefore what you end up with is a society that lacks self-control. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. It's similar to what I tell people when they complain about millennials. I mm. always ask, well, where do you think they learned it from? Don't blame the millennials. Blame the Gen Xers. Blame their parents. Yep. Who do you think raised them to think this way? Who do you think raised them to, to have this attitude? you know, yes, blame the parents. But then secondly, then how about we just hold each other accountable? Easy there. Right. I know. Right? You're going to make me feel bad. I was going to say, wait a minute, this isn't 1954. Calm down. <laughs> but I think that's, to me, that's really what's lacking. And this goes back to the point of, of discipline and a training. Again, like I said, whether you're training with, with firearms or you're training in, in combat martial arts, self-control is key to a successful career in these, these, these disciplines, but also then accountability. Because when I fight, when I spar, I'm still accountable to that person who's trying to rip my head off. You know, next Saturday I have to compete in a tournament, or I'm going to compete in a tournament, and that person doesn't know me. Yep. And he's got one job, which is get that $5 gold medallion that's hanging around that dude's neck. Mm-hmm. And I'm in his way. So within the rule set, he's going to try and rip my head off. And inversely, so am I. Although I'm going to rip his head off, not my own head. There you go. That would be self-defeating. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the point being is, we deny that we are by nature violent and brutal creatures. And second of all, then, by rejecting that, we then react with shock and awe when violence and brutality expose us so to speak. Exactly. And then we have to marginalize those individuals and call them monsters and dehumanize them because there's this mirror now that is being held up to us 
that says, yeah, I'm just the manifestation of the stuff that goes on in your head. The difference being I acted on that stuff. And we all yeah. do it in our own way, whether it's arguments for control at home, whether it's I'm tired of being afraid of getting beat up on the street, so I'm going to go take a jujitsu class, or I'm going to go into the military because I believe that those people over there, not morally good people. And I want to help those other people over there who want to live a, a quiet, uh, peaceful life. Yep. It's there and it's inescapable. But I think the bubble of safety that we currently enjoy in this country allows us the privilege of not being rational creatures. There you go. And not and thinking through these things. That's where training, regardless of whether it's firearms or martial arts or, or uh, you know, uh, that is where training, as I see it, is actually more valuable today mm -hmm. than it was even, say, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, how many people today grew up hunting, for example? I grew exactly. up hunting. I learned how to shoot a gun when I was a kid. And one of the first things that my dad, who's a Vietnam vet, taught me is you don't point your gun at something that you're not going to shoot. And you mm -hmm. don't shoot something unless you're going to eat it. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I'm not a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, but the point being is I was raised to respect guns by people that hunted. Mm -hmm. And... And also then the life that I lived in my late teens and early 20s, on the other side, I did hang out with people who, for lack of a better term, hunted, but they just didn't hunt animals. Mm -hmm. And they used guns to shoot each other. And as a consequence, I hate, well, I hated guns for a long time because of that, because I saw the consequence of guns being used against other people. Yeah. And so I just hated guns. And now that I'm, I'm older and, and I've been around people who, again, know how to be responsible and handle guns responsibly and have an ethic, um, I'm able to go to the gun range again and do those kinds of things with those folks and have those conversations and enjoy it again. But it was many years because of the trauma of being around people who shot each other yeah. and saying, wait, no, this is not good. This is not the best way to solve these situations, mm -hmm. resolve these conflicts. But I want to throw one thing at the... At, um, this conversation too, because it reminded me of something I posted on Instagram the other day from Marcus Aurelius, big shock, uh, from the meditations. And it goes to the point though. He writes, in the field of play, an opponent scratches us with his nails, say, or gives us a butting blow with his head. But we do not mark him for that or take offense or suspect him afterwards of deliberate attack. True, we do keep clear of him. But this is good natured avoidance, not suspicion or treating him as an enemy. Something similar should be the case in the other areas of life, too. We have people who are our opponents in the game, quote-unquote, and we should overlook much of what they do. We can avoid them, as I say, without suspicion or enmity. Mm -hmm. The point being, actually exactly what I was just describing because it happened to me in real life today, just because someone hurts you physically or they say something that you don't appreciate or don't like or you allow your emotions to overwhelm your thoughts. That doesn't therefore mean that that person is your enemy. Yes. Or that you now have to obsess about how you're going to get revenge on them for what they've done to you. Mm -hmm. But rather accept that's a human being and they have their own emotions. They have their own thoughts. They have their own experiences. And it just so happens that you two crisscrossed at this point and something happened. And it probably had nothing to do with you whatsoever. In fact, I would guarantee it didn't have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. We're just in the way of that. And like I said before, you become kind of a mirror 
that's held up to this person. And they see themselves reflected back at themselves in you. And if they don't like themselves or they don't like the person that they are that day, then you, well, you're going to basically conjure up emotions that they don't want to, to, to confront. Exactly. Thoughts, yeah. thoughts that they don't want to deal with. And so rather than take it personally and then you kind of take that inside yourself and now all of a sudden you've got this internal torment, take that step back and ask yourself the question. Does this keyboard warrior, for example, who's saying all these hurtful things to me on Twitter, is this person really worth my time or is this person sad and pathetic? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, are they saying these things because they don't like me? No, they don't even know you. And even if they do know you, they don't know you. Otherwise, they don't say those things to you. But in just a purely objective sense then, they're saying these things because they don't value themselves. It's like Jocko always says, you can't be disrespected by people who don't respect themselves. Exactly. If you can just keep that in mind, then when something happens, you can ask yourself, why am I reacting this way? And not worry about why they're reacting this way. It's like uh, trainer Gay, G-A-E, is a famous Muay Thai trainer in Thailand, says, I battle against me. Yeah. yeah. That's a great little video clip. Right. Is that ultimately I'm not battling against Mike or Tim or Cameron or Nate or Spence. I'm battling against me. Mm-hmm. And this person who's battling against me, they're battling against themselves too. But the way that we choose to do that is by asking another person to stand in for us and say, hey, can you, can you be the projection of all of my insecurities and fears? In a lot of ways, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's really accurate. Um, the issue uh, we have right now is because everything is so soft and squishy, so safe, so nerfed, if you will, mm-hmm. people don't have the ability to do really anything of value. Right. So, which again is a projection of their own inherent value of themselves. It, that it, that's what it becomes. If you value yourself, then what you put out in the world will be a value because you won't accept something that's of lesser value than the way that you value your own self, your time, your energy, your attention, your actions, everything. Yeah. But when the only thing you've done in life is play on Facebook or watch movies or play video games or whatever, mm-hmm. There's no value in that. Not ultimately, no. Because we have been trained to, to place value upon the extraordinary. Right. And so somebody looks at their job at, um, I don't know, Grange or something. Mm-hmm. And they say, there is no value in this. Or they look at their time in college or whatever and they judge it to not be of value because it is not extraordinary. Right. What ends up happening is they end up uh, internalizing Mm -hmm. these disappointments and magnifying them far beyond what objectively is true. Mm -hmm. And then without training, without 
being involved in activities, whether martial arts or, or whatever, that forces them to push themselves, that forces them to fail, to mm-hmm. work, to get better, so on and mm-hmm. so forth. They have no realistic measurement of themselves. Correct. And so what happens when a person who views themselves as a failure mm-hmm. becomes offended right. by something? Right. Well, they're going to demand that they, in fact, are given success. They're going to demand that everything conform to, well, their view of utopia. Right. Which is no place. No place, right. Well, I think for me, the root of this, if you want to maintain your composure, you want to think reasonably and you don't want to allow your emotions to manage you, you need to learn to be indifferent to what makes no difference. And the way to learn to be indifferent towards things and people that don't make no difference is through discipline. Mm-hmm. Disciplining your mind, disciplining your body, disciplining your emotions. And like you said, whether it's in combat martial arts, whether it's through the military, whether it's through physical training, whatever that, whatever shape, you know, that takes on mental training too. Mm-hmm. Hopefully what you discover in that process, in that practice of developing these habits, these patterns of behavior, this code of conduct is that as you gain control of yourself, things that don't make any difference that are indifferent, you treat them as indifferent things all of a sudden because they don't matter as much as they used to because now you're focused on ultimate things Mm -hmm. and you clarify for yourself what actually matters to me. And you learn uh, that you have value. And especially if you engage interpersonally with other people. This is why CrossFit is so popular and Mm -hmm. why martial arts are so popular. Is because you're doing something, you're struggling together. You're physically and mentally and emotionally struggling together. And there's a bonding that takes place in that. It's a very intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence then, things that used to be, you know, ride or die become indifferent. Yep. Why? Because your priorities change. And your priorities have changed because you've changed. Well, you've shifted from the hyper individualism to that family or team or <gasps> tribal mentality. Right. In, in a good, in a healthy sense. Yeah. So things that would have in the past been horrible slights and stains upon your honor, you realize don't actually matter because they're committed by people who mm-hmm. <laughs> aren't a part of the team and right. themselves to begin with. Exactly. And it's a like lot I, of this, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, I tell people this all the time. Now, if you're not my family, my congregation or my training partners, I don't care about your opinion because if yeah. you're not going to bleed for me and not bleed with me, why should I listen to you? You're not entitled to my attention or my time. Mm-hmm. Like the people that have proven that they're worth my time and attention have done so in that crucible of everyday life and that struggle to better themselves. Mm-hmm. The people that want to tear us down, like the bucket of crabs analogy we've used before, they're trying to tear you down because they don't value themselves. And therefore, yep. other people who do and who are striving to grow and improve and get better are that mirror that shows them you're not doing these things. Mm -hmm. 
it upsets the status quo. And there it is. Because you allow your emotions to manage you, when you, quote unquote, feel bad about yourself because Donovan did this or Bill said that, that's what you're doing. You're allowing what we do to be a kind of fuel to inflame your emotions mm-hmm. versus recognizing nothing that Donovan does has actual effect on my life that if I don't allow it. Yep. So Donovan's actually one of those indifferent things, <laughs> unless you choose to make me not indifferent. Mm. But I don't, I don't have any control over that. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's the rub right there. The self-control. Mm-hmm. So that brings us uh, to about 40, 45 minutes. We're going to keep this one short, probably keep the podcast shorter for those of you who have a shorter drive time to work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, our data metrics show that the average person engages one of these podcasts for about 38 minutes. And so we don't want to drag this out or exhaust you with a lot of chatter. And so we're kind of keeping it tight, as tight as we can, especially with me on a podcast, because I like to talk, (laughs) I think out loud, but nonetheless. You got anything else? Do you want to wrap up self-control or anything that Natobi said? Uh, Yeah, just real briefly. um, Something that Natobi doesn't really bring up here, but is a, uh, I think was assumed in his day and age. When building self-control, when building discipline, the first question you have to ask is the physical. Mm -hmm. That is to say, without a physical component, be it jujitsu or CrossFit or whatever form of exercise you wish to engage in, without that physical aspect, you're not going to build the discipline you desire. Yeah, I have to agree with you 100% on that one, at least for myself, it's true. I think for men, um, it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be interesting to uh, find out if women differ on that. I yeah, don't know. Here's the question for the next podcast. If you're listening to this and you are female or male, write in, send us a, a text, get a hold of Bill on Twitch, and let us know what you think. Yeah. All the social media platforms, yeah. drop us a line, let us know. That's an interesting awesome. question. Good stuff from Natobi. I think we're going to probably move on to the next project after this. And uh, so we'll come back next week with a brand new episode. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for your time and attention. We know it's valuable to you and we value it as well. So we hope we uh, helped get you thinking. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Peace.